0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. There's pressures that are typical for the Christian to face throughout life and throughout the ages. We face pressures regularly, and often churches and Christians face Uh, the same pressures throughout the generations. And today we're looking at three pressures that Christians typically face as we read these instructions of Christ to his disciples awaiting his persecution and then the judgment that is to come upon Jerusalem a few years later. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 9. gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come and ask, we beg really God that you would pour your spirit upon us to receive uh, the word of God by faith and to trust in our savior Jesus all the more that you would strengthen your church, unite us through the preached word, encourage our hearts to remain steadfast amidst the pressures and tribulations of life. And for those who are unconverted or false converted, convert them today, dear God, we pray. And please anoint the preaching and hearing of your word. Amen. So as we come to this passage in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Do not force your understanding of the end times into this. I've said that before. I've cautioned you of that before. Uh, this is not a prophecy of, uh, directly of a seven-year tribulation that's yet to come in the future. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's preparing them for a tribulation that they are to face uh, as they prepare for the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Really, this, this whole this section answers the question... Uh, that comes up in verse three. Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple in verse 2. And in verse 3, the disciples ask him about that. They say as as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? They've confused the second coming of Christ with the close of the age or the destruction of Jerusalem. And they want to talk about all those things together. Well, Jesus divides it up nice and neatly for us in this section. And so from verses 4 through 34, everything is going to be fulfilled in the generation that Christ is speaking to in that immediate time. So if you look down to verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So everything from that question I just read in verse 3 to verse 34, all of these things Uh, will, will happen before this generation passes away. This is a prophecy that is to be fulfilled in the time of Christ's disciples. And it occurs in the context, all of this in chapter 24 occurs within the context of Christ declaring judgment upon Jerusalem, Israel, the temple. All of it is going to happen soon. He assures us of that in chapter 21, 22, 23. And then chapter 24, the question gets asked, and he talks about what this is going to be like when destruction comes, judgment comes to Jerusalem and the temple. There's no mention in this text of a pre-tribulational rapture or a mid-tribulational rapture that's not in that text. It's not in any text in the Bible, um, but it's certainly not in this text. And this is specifically referring to a tribulation that is to occur in the lifetime of the disciples. It's a tribulation that has come and gone. When Jesus was referring to this tribulation, he was prophesying of a tribulation that was yet to come, and then it came, and it came when Jerusalem came under the wrath of God in 70 A.D., and everything was destroyed. But even though this is referring to an event that was yet to come in the time of the disciples and has already now come from our vantage point... Even as it's referring to that, it is speaking to endless and timeless principles. People, human nature has not changed, and God hasn't changed. So history repeats itself, but it never repeats itself the same way. I guess you could say things tend to unfold typically or typologically. There's certain patterns that are set, and because those patterns are set, we can derive application from what we see here. Where many, by the way, come to this text, many come to this text and they're tempted to delve into endless end times speculation and sensation. Jesus doesn't do that. Um, at least initially, he doesn't even, he hardly even talks about what's to come other than what the disciples' reaction is to be when things start to fall apart. And unravel. He's, he's more concerned about pastorally preparing his disciples to persevere amidst the tribulation than he has about speculating on the tribulation that's to take place. And I think so many come to this, and, and you see it, I've seen it, you've heard about it over the last few years, people come to texts like this one, and, and they want to Speculate endlessly about eschatology and end times. But you see the heart of Christ in this. I think the endless speculation appeals more to um, our flesh than anything. Whereas Christ's heart is to prepare them to be faithful in the middle of it. That's the heart of Christ. This should be our heart. Not, Not to to learn all the colored-in details of all the events that are going to be unleashed, but to simply have our hearts prepared so that we are found faithful by our King when, as the future unfolds and the church is led through tribulations and trials. The essential messages of this section, as I indicated last time, is, is when the chips fall, and the chips will fall, When the chips fall, keep your focus upon Christ and don't lose your head. This is the message. And today we look at what it looks like when the chips fall. We look at the pressures that Christians face, the pressures that the church faces. Now, last time I looked at this text, when I looked at verses 4 through 8 specifically, we looked at what it would look like on a macro scale in the empire. The Roman Empire. There'd be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and false claims to being Christ. That was on a macro level. Well, today in verses 9 through 12, or 9 through 14 even, it's speaking to a micro level. When all of these things start to unfold and there is a rupture within the social fabric of the empire, How is that going to affect the individual lives of Christ's disciples? And how should they act within it? So this is now zeroing in on their daily life almost, whereas last time it was the type of thing you'd see on the evening news. So we're going to see three aspects or three pressures that Christians face when things unravel. Three pressures that Christians face when things are unravelled. Number one, the pressure of persecution. Number two, the pressure of deception. And number three, the pressure of lovelessness, cold heartedness. The pressure of persecution, the pressure of deception, and the pressure of lovelessness. So let's look at this pressure of persecution. As we zoom in, we were on the macro level of things unraveling last week, or last time we were together to talk about this text. It was three weeks ago. And now we're zeroing in to the micro level of how this impacts Christians on a regular basis and the pressure of persecution. Jesus warns his disciples that they will be persecuted by the world. So he talks about all these... Things are going to happen, the beginning of birth pains, the famines, the earthquakes, the nations rising against nations, the wars and rumors of wars. And in verse 9, then, this is going to get into their business now, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. The pressure of persecution. They'll deliver you up to tribulation. The, The word tribulation there is very important because some people get fixated on it and they think it's referring to the great tribulation that is is to come i think the state of the church is one of constant tribulation and trials and the greek word is is flips and i only say that because this word that is translated here for tribulation is translated in other parts of the bible differently and so for example in acts chapter 11 verse 19 the very same word occurs but there it is translated in the english as persecution and so the reference here to tribulation can be to persecution but it's it's any trouble that inflicts distress oppression or a affliction it's a trial that christians go through the the tribulation is a persecution it is a it is a pressure that the church faces and the pressure of persecution includes a number of things one it includes being murdered and the other it includes being hated if you see the text that says so Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and what's it say in verse 9? And put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So this this tribulation, this persecution, this trial is one that includes being murdered and being hated. It's interesting because when you think about persecution being unleashed upon the church, there's different levels of persecution, there's a spectrum. And within that spectrum, you have persecution, but there's, there's different types of ways it manifests itself. And so in, in one instance, the text says you'll be murdered, and the other one it says you'll be hated. But when we went through our ordeal last year, there were those, there was one very popular or I guess very outspoken pastor in Ontario who said that what the churches are going through is not persecution, and of course he wasn't going through it because he was, his church was compliant, but he was saying that with the churches that were going through, it was not persecution. Because he, he, he just used the language of something to the effect of, well, because you know, it's not like they're being murdered and chopped up and thrown into Lake Ontario. Well, that, that's a really ignorant and buffoonish way to describe persecution. Because persecution occurs in multiple different ways. You don't have to be executed and tortured to be persecuted. Jesus just describes it here as being murdered and hated. Or hated. So you see, so you walk into the room and everybody knows what your convictions are and they don't like your convictions and you feel the tension. Well, that is a level of persecution. It's not the same degree that murder is, but it's a level of it. Uh, Jesus even talked about earlier in the Gospel of Matthew about being insulted and mocked and ridiculed for the sake of righteousness. And so there's multiple ways in which persecution is unleashed. And here he says, you'll be put to death and you will be hated. And look who's going to do it. They will deliver you up to tribulation and you'll be put to death and you will be hated by who? By all nations. For my name's sake, for the sake of Jesus. We'll look at that word all nations a little bit more next time we're together, but when he's speaking of all nations, he's speaking of the Gentiles. And the word could be, the Greek word is ethnon, from which we get our word ethnic group or Ethnicity speaking of Gentile nationalities or Gentile ethnicities. And you need to know that within the Roman Empire, it wasn't one eth- ethnic group. It was multiple ethnicities within the Roman Empire. You think about how vast and large that empire was. It was from all the way from North Africa to Northern Europe, right around the Mediterranean into the Middle East, all the way over to Britain. And so that was a massive... Empire, and within that empire there were many different ethnicities, nationalities. Even in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit of God came down, you see that there are many different languages being spoken in Jerusalem at the time because they started to speak in those languages when it says they spoke in tongues. So they spoke in the many languages of the nations that were represented right there in Jerusalem. And so there's going to be one thing that all of these different nationalities and ethnic groups in the empire have in common when this day finally comes. And what they're going to have in common is hatred towards Christians. Jesus is speaking of the the pressure of persecution. And this is exactly how it unfolded after Christ ascended to heaven. It's spot on. His predictions and his prophecies are spot on. In Acts, there's more references to the persecution of the church in Acts than I have time to mention this morning, but just to note a few. In Acts chapter 7 verses 58 through 60, Stephen was executed by stoning. He's the first martyr of the Christian church. Acts chapter eight verse three, we have reference made to home invasions and kidnappings. You minding your own business in your home, maybe having a prayer meeting and there'd be a home invasion? in your home, and you'd be kidnapped and dragged away. That was a persecution that was unleashed on the church. Chapter 22, verse 4 of the book of Acts, they were imprisoned. In chapter 22, verse 19, they were beaten and viciously assaulted. So after Christ's ascension, the persecution increased, leading up to this destruction of Jerusalem that he's referring to here. And the worst of the persecutions were unleashed just before the destruction of Jerusalem. So at the end of Emperor Nero's reign between 64 and 65 A.D., you had the most wicked and heinous persecutions unleashed upon the church. So Nero's, the beginning of Nero's reign was, some people thought he was a decent guy, but near the end of his reign he was vicious, especially towards Christians, in between the years 64 and 68, uh, when the Jewish wars started, Philip Schaff, the church historian, I'll, I'll read an excerpt from what he said about those persecutions under Nero. He said, A vast multitude of Christians was put to death in the most shocking manner, some were crucified. Some were sewed up in the skins of wild beasts and exposed to the veracity of mad dogs in the arena. So they would, they would dress the Christians up like animals, and they put them in the Colosseum, and then they would unleash packs of vicious dogs upon them, to tear them to shreds. And, the, and, and you know that all the nations, just as Jesus said, hated the Christians because they gathered in the Colosseum to watch it as a form of entertainment. What's a Friday night like in Rome in 68 AD or 67 AD? Well, let's get together for a dinner and a few drinks, and afterwards we'll go to the Colosseum and watch some dogs rip Christians to shreds. These people hated Christians. And then beyond that, Philip Schaff went on to say, he said, Christian men and women covered in pitch or oil or resin and nailed to posts of pine were lighted and burned as torches for the amusement of the mob. Nero actually did that in his gardens. So in the evening time, he'd have parties in his gardens, and, and to light his gardens at night, he would cover Christians with tar while they're alive and nail them to posts in his gardens and light them on fire. And say, so, hey, what a... What a wonderful evening. We get to spend time with the emperor tonight. Wow, the emperor's invited us to his party, and, and we sit there and we eat our hors d'oeuvres while we watch Christians burn. And so this is, this is exactly what Christ said. All the nations in the empire conspired against the Christians. They hated them. It built up gradually, and then in between 64 and 68 A.D., under, under Nero, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, it was unleashed in the most vicious way imaginable. This was a pressure that Jesus warned the disciples of. It's a pressure we need to be aware of. The times, persecution times come and they go. There's waves of persecution that fall upon the church through seasons. And he warned about this external pressure of persecution. But he didn't just warn about the external pressure of persecution coming from the world. He warned about the persecution that would come from those who profess to know Jesus Christ. Which I suspect is the worst. Verse 10, he said, after warning of being murdered and hated, he said, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, persecution would reveal the traitors within the church. The, the external pressure of persecution causes the fake converts to crack and turn on those within the church who they formerly shared communion tables with in the interest of self-preservation. Verse 10. And then many will fall away. See, you have this external pressure on the church of persecution tribulation, death, being hated, and then within the church there's this rupture of people falling away, betraying one another, and hating each other. So the pressure from the world leads to rupture and division within the church, and hatred and rancor and betrayal within the church. The word there for falling away is important, where it says many will fall away, it's the English, or the Greek word is scandalizo, from which we get our English word scandal or scandalize. So this, this could be translated, many will be scandalized or many will be offended. In fact, the King James Version does translate it as offended. And the idea is this that the text is presenting the emotions and public reproach of persecution force people within the church to make a decision, and there's factions that rise up that are ashamed of their former friends, and they publicly betray them to save face. So so one day, you're enjoying the Lord's Supper together and you're singing hymns together in church, and the next day, the external pressure of persecution causes those who you were enjoying the Lord's Supper with and you were singing hymns with to rupture and turn upon those who want to be faithful, to distance themselves from them. I don't want to be like them. They're a scandal. They're an offense. So let me show the world how much I'm like the world as a Christian so that I don't get lumped in with those people. And in fact, I think that often when persecuting times comes, the worst is from those from the inside. They're so ashamed of, their former friends, that they publicly turn on them to save face and save their reputations. They they betray and they hate, it says. They betray and they hate. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. During the persecution of John During John Bunyan's time at the end of the 17th century when the state church started to persecute the dissenting churches. uh, They record that this is precisely what happened and there was a man that John Bunyan was friends with. Bunyan spent 12 and a half years in jail for resisting the state and for uh, maintaining that the state has no authority over the worship of the church. And there was a man that he spent a lot of time with. You would have prayed with him likely beforehand named John Childs. And when, under Charles II, when the persecution was unleashed, Childs uh, betrayed Christ. John Childs did. He was a Baptist minister, a friend of John Bunyan's, and he capitulated when the persecution broke out, and then eventually he just walked down a very, very dark path and killed himself. Uh, he felt so much shame for what he had done. But this is what it does. You read about the, the faithful churches in Holland when... The Nazis occupied Holland and the Netherlands and the faithful pastors who turned them in but the other pastors who were complicit with the Nazis. So men that they would have sat on ordination councils with, the men that they would have went to seminary with and prayed with and studied scripture with, turned them in because they wanted to save face. And not have their reputations dragged down by these faithful ministers. This is the way it works. I know of at least one pastor in our own country who had the cops called on him for gathering his church for worship. Police showed up, was ticketed multiple times. And who was it that called the cops on him other than a minister in his own denomination? Persecuting times show us who the traitors are. and Persecution separates the gold from the fool's gold. Really, the gold starts to shine like it never shone during persecution times because the, the, it's, just, it's just beautifully glowing gold. But the fool's gold that looked like gold before persecuting times, it's washed away and you see that it's fake. And persecuting times bring out the best and the worst in, in churches. The best and the worst in ministers, the best and the worst in professing Christians. They bring out the best and the worst because they show you the difference. Persecuting times are revealing times. They show you who's who and where they stand. And Jesus warned of persecution from without That leads to persecution from within. You have this pressure, so confusing for people in the middle of it, because you have the persecution coming from the outside, and that ruptures things on the inside. And, And now lines are being drawn, and factions are developing, and Christ warns of all of that. When the persecution comes, it hits you from the outside, and it ruptures things from the inside. And look at how common it is. So if you look at verse 9, who does the persecution come from? All nations. Not a few of the nations, not a handful of them, not a few groups within society, all. And who falls away and betrays and hates the church in verse 10? And then many will fall away. Not a few, not a handful, many. 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 Jesus warned of persecution from without that leads to turncoats and quizzlings on the inside. And we've seen that. The people of Christ should expect persecution when the world shakes. It's actually a... I think when the world is tottering, I think those are times when Satan unleashes persecution on the church. Because when the world is tottering, Satan knows that God is using the tottering world to advance his kingdom. And persecution comes upon the church, ruptures the church, and the pure and the holy pull through and come out the other side of it, untouched and untarnished. They show their mettle. That's one pressure that you face as a Christian. They faced it leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and it's happened throughout the ages. The, the other pressure that we see here, there's two other pressures. The other one is the pressure of deception. Deception. The pressure of deception, number two. Beyond the pressure of persecution is the pressure of deception. False teachers, verse 11. Look at verse 11, it says, "And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Persecuting times present a great market for opportunist false prophets. There's a market for them. The persecuting times creates a vacuum. It creates a need because what happens in persecuting times is the false converts who want to escape the persecution want to justify their, their treason against King Jesus. And so what do they do? But They raise up teachers who itch their scratching ears. Oh, it's okay. You can act that way. Don't worry about it. Don't be like one of them fanatics, those crazy people who, who follow Christ so intensely. And so it, it raises up and it creates a market and a, a niche market for, for false prophets. And I suspect that there's a link between the prophets that are being mentioned here, the false prophets in verse 11, and, and lawlessness, which is the justification of compromise. Because if you look at verse 11, or verse 12, rather, it says, and because lawlessness will be increased. So it seems that these false prophets, one of the things that they're doing is they're the preachers of lawlessness. Lawlessness is, something, is just simply saying you don't need to apply God's moral character or moral law to your life. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Let's not talk about sin so much, and let's not do things that will offend the onlooking world so much that are, that are scriptural. And so I, I suspect that the false prophets that Jesus is referring to here are, are men who preach lawlessness. Who, who It's hyper-grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about hyper-grace and, and the problem of hyper-grace during the rise of the Third Reich in Germany and how the German churches became so infected with Nazism is because they believed in hyper-grace. And they had no concept of right and wrong. And so they were infected with that disease, and and it gave room for the host, or for them to be devoured by the parasite of Nazism, hyper-grace. Jesus actually linked false prophets with lawlessness in chapter 7. So if you look at chapter 7, verses 12 through 27, Jesus has already made this link, and he's talking about... The, the hard road and the narrow way. So, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to go through the narrow way and you have to take the hard road, the long road, to get there, as opposed to the broad way that many people enter through and the easy road. And the idea is, is that the false prophets will, will line up at the intersection between the easy road and the hard road, and they'll say, You don't need to go down the easy road, go down the, or don't, don't go down the hard road. You can go down the easy road, it's okay. You can go down with the majority. And the false prophets have all kinds of biblical reasons why that's just fine. And So Jesus has already made this link. And, and so I suspect this is the link that's going on here. Is as it, is it occurs again in verse 12 of our text today. It happens through Matthew chapter 7. Is these false prophets, these men of antinomianism, and these justifiers of compromise. The pressures of persecution give rise to to preachers who peddle the justification of compromise. Hey, you want a reason why it's okay to compromise? We got five. And I'll give you footnotes, and I'll reference some fine scholars for you, too. And these are the false prophets. The New Testament has referenced to them. In fact, the book of Jude, the entire book of Jude is written to deal with men like that, the justifiers of compromise, the antinomian teachers, the lawless teachers. Uh, The book of James deals with the lawless preachers. Paul warned of them in Acts chapter 20 in his sermon to the Ephesian elders. Peter warned of them in 2 Peter 2. John warned of them in 1 John 4. But the reality is is that the pressure of deception is as real as any. And, And as a church, we've lost people to false teachers, There's people that have eaten communion with us, drank communion with us, and they've gone down to false churches and false teachers. We've lost them to those churches. Why? Well, they're not paying attention to what Scripture says. And so they're taken with some novel, fancy idea. We had our members meeting last week, and we we talked about a few people who are under church discipline for this because they've gone down to false apostate churches. This is what deception does. It deceives people. It takes them to places they shouldn't go. And when you go through times of upheaval and times of turmoil, it's very confusing for people. And it's really hard. And I remember, you know, you look two years ago when the lockdowns first started. What was the comment is, is there were so many different messages coming at Christians. One of the comments you heard regularly, it's so confusing. I don't know what to think. The devil has designed it that way. He is the author of confusion. God brings clarity with his word. And the devil uses the times of confusion and the times of pressure and the times of stress and the times of strain to draw people away. And that's what Jesus is warning about here. It's like, okay, fine. You're going to make it through the persecution? Well, let's see if you make it through the false teachers. Right? Right? And you need to be aware of false teachers. I had a conversation with my family last night. One of the kids asked about a false teacher who's quite popular on the Internet. And he's a very gifted communicator, this particular false teacher. And he quotes the Bible every now and then. He talks about Jesus a lot. And I, I said to the kids, I said, you've got to watch for these guys. Because they're going to say a lot of right things. But the problem is, is they say just enough wrong things for it to be toxic. It can look like water. You know, it's a gallon of water, but you put a drop of cyanide in it. And it's deadly stuff. You need to know the Scriptures, and you need to test things against the Scriptures. You should bring your Bible to church. You should read your Bible. You should study your Bible. You should check what you're hearing from the pulpit against the Bible. The Bible is your standard of, of what is right and wrong, and once we start to deviate from that, then we open ourselves up to deception, and I, and I think a lot of these churches that are pastored by false teachers, one of the reasons that they are so susceptible to it is, is I don't think the people know hardly anything about Scripture, and they go, oh, if he's excited about it, I guess I'll get excited about it. Wow, that looks like fun. And he talks about Jesus a few times, and, and so that must be okay. I mean, it's got to be Christian. They say prayers every now and then, and they sing songs. So, and they say they're a church. It's got to be Christian. This is the pressure of deception. It's everywhere, especially in lawless times like we live in. This is, Jesus is speaking of a lawless time here because he says in verse 12, and lawlessness will be increased. So their government's lawless. There's, been, there's lawlessness in the church. The culture's lawless. Simply means there's no sta- biblical standard of right and wrong. God's law is denied, and you are a law unto yourself. What's right and wrong is up to the individual. And there's all kinds of people who are going to peddle that nonsense. Lawlessness increases, increases and, there's, and confusion increases, and deception is on every corner. So you have the pressure of persecution, then you have the pressure of deception, and then finally... The final pressure that we have here today that we look at is the pressure of lovelessness, cold-heartedness. This is the final one, cold-hearted lovelessness. The other two pressures I mentioned, persecution and deception, are external. They come from the outside. Persecution comes from other people. The deception is being communicated to you by other people, false prophets, false teachers. But the temptation towards lovelessness is internal. It's your own heart. And Jesus says in verse 12, he says, and because lawlessness will be increased, or the lawlessness will increase, so what happens when that happens? The love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness, you know, the, the state is persecuting the Christians. Christians are turning on each other. False teachers are saying that it's all just fine and dandy and normal? And what does that lead to? But it leads to the love of many growing cold. The church can react, you can react, we can react to general decline with a cold heart. You might get through the persecution, you might pass through the false teachers, but will you be able to maintain your first love? Jesus Christ. Will you be able to maintain your first love? And this is a warning I want everyone to hear because, because I think as a church, we've had a history of, of discerning false teaching from time to time. Certainly over the last year, we've resisted compromise during persecution. But the temptation could still be to let our hearts grow cold. If, For example, the church in Ephesus did just that. If Jesus warns them and Revelation chapter 2, the Lord Jesus is is addressing the church in Ephesus, and in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, they're enduring through hardship, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and found them to be false, they're able to discern false teaching. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So they've endured all of this hardship. But then Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 2, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So they they were faithful in the persecution. They they were faithful with the temptation to false teaching. But their hearts grew cold to the Lord. They're no longer tender. It is possible that you'll pass through the first test and you'll pass through the second test and you'll fail the third test. You could become judgmental, self-righteous. Glad I'm not like those people, bitter. We could, we could very easily perpe- participate in you know, we, perpetual victimhood. We are perpetually victims and, and moan and whine about it. Cynical, angry, sullen, all of these things could overtake our hearts so that our hearts are no longer occupied with the love of Christ, but they're occupied with selfishness or nursing wounds or being judgmental or bitter or lashing out and becoming cold-hearted and sitting back and laughing at the stupidity of the world as opposed to, really, our hearts should be broken over it so many times. Well, what did Jesus do before the destruction of Jerusalem? Before we got into this text, he wept over Jerusalem. These are the people that were going to kill him. And he wept over them. Look at the prophet Jeremiah. What do we learn about the prophet Jeremiah? Well, he watched, he prophesied that, Jer- that Jerusalem would fall. Jerusalem falls. He's thrown in a prison, in a dungeon. And, and what does, what's he known as? He's known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he cries so much over the destruction and terror and sin within Jerusalem. He doesn't want to see these people fall apart. And you know, our hearts should be the same. You know, people have different emotional compositions and are given to weeping more than others. But at the end of the day, the test isn't whether or not you shed tears. I think the test is is what's going on in the heart. Is your heart moved? by Christ? Is your heart tender towards Christ? Do you still, sure you pass the trials, but do you still love Jesus? Is your heart hot towards him, warm, pliable in his hands? And beyond that, what's your disposition towards your neighbors and your fellow man and even your persecutors? Jesus could look at his persecutors and he could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? Right? And we, we ought to have a similar disposition, have tender hearts. See so you, you see how this whittles away the true from the false? Well, the, okay, the, they didn't survive the persecutions, but then the ones that survived the persecutions, well, they didn't survive the, um, the false teaching. But then there's still some left. And then, then a lot of them didn't survive the, the cold hearts. That developed within the church and this is something we have to be on guard against we've we fought false teaching we've persevered through persecution and may we always have tender hearts towards christ and towards other people always may our hearts always be tender towards christ and other people our hearts should be tender with love for christ and we should be full of empathy towards those who suffer and it would be easy to fight false doctrine and resist persecution, all the while forgetting our love for the Savior who bled for us. And, and pastorally, Jesus warns his disciples of these three pressures. As they're going to face this very destructive time in history. And these are pressures that we all face, that Christians have faced throughout the ages. And they're pressures that are common. They're a big problem. And I want to I just review our text today real quickly and highlight a few words so that you see how, how tempting this is to go down one of these three roads that I mentioned. So you look at verse 9, and who are they hated by? They're hated by all nations. This is a lot of people. And then you look at verse 10, and, and how many fall away? And then many will fall away, right? The subject of that verb, is many, and it's the same subject that is used for the verb betray and hate. Many will fall away, many will betray, many will hate. There will be a mass defection. In verse 11, how many false prophets? Many. And how many will be led astray by the false prophets? Many will be led astray. Many will fall away, many will betray, many will hate, many false prophets, and many will be led astray. And then verse 12, our last warning, the last issue. And because lawlessness will be increased, the word "their increase" could also be translated multiplied, but beyond that, the love of how many? Many will grow cold. Not a few will fall away. Not a few will be led astray, and not a few will grow cold. Many, many will many many and then look what he says in verse 13 but the one who endures to the end will be saved see the contrast many will be led astray many will fall away many will be full of hatred and betrayal and then through that the ones that remain many will develop cold hearts and the one that endures to the end will be saved this is a call of endurance May God make count you among the many and not, or among the one and not among the many. May you be counted amongst the one and not amongst the many. May I be counted amongst the one and not amongst the many. This is a call to keep our eyes and our hearts and our affections focused upon Jesus Christ, the Savior who died and bled for us, the one who purchased us. May our hearts be enraptured with His grace and with His kindness. And and, and with warm hearts of love towards Him. Because if If we lose our focus on Jesus Christ, we'll be among the many that fall away or the many that are taken by false prophets or the many whose hearts grow cold as opposed to what verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Christian life is is one of multiple pressures and they come in seasons and waves. You have the pressure of persecution, you have the pressure of deception, and then you have the pressure of lovelessness. And many, many, many will succumb to one or all three of those pressures, but the one that endures to the end will be saved. May God count us and find us among the one and not among the many.